I hope you're determined and I hope I am to live for the King. Thank you, fellas, for a, such a beautiful message and song. Because of what the Lord Jesus has already done for us, it helps us in our determination to continue to live for him. He's the King. And I hope you enjoyed your time of interaction. You just gave yourself assurance that you are redeemed. You see the uh, illustrations of renovation in your life that you shared with one another, that's actually evidence of redemption. Your renovation is evidence of your redemption. Now, you may not all be troubled by this, but some are. We just have to be honest. Um, you, you're a believer. You, you know the Lord Jesus. He's your Savior, but sometimes you doubt your standing. You wonder, in fact, if you're actually redeemed. Well, this is for you tonight. I want to show you what the writer of Hebrews, uh, we've been studying that book and have called it the letter of better. I want to show you what the writer of the letter of better has for us tonight. It's in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 10 and on, just a few verses. And I think he wants us to know that this renovation, which you have just shared with one another, the one wrought in your life by the Lord Jesus. I think he wants us to know that that renovation is better than any other possible renovation the world may offer to us. So if you're uh, looking for some real evidence of your salvation, I think we could provide it for you tonight. And I hope you leave uh, encouraged about the faith, your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and with more enthusiasm to and more determination to live for him than ever before. So follow along with me, Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 10. Here's what we read. By this, now we don't know what the this is yet. We have to read a little further. By this will we have been sanctified and here's what the this is, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. We spoke about that last week, the enfleshment, embodiment of uh, Almighty God, the Lord Jesus, who always was, but came in the form of man at a certain point in time. And he did it in order to suffer and die for us because God, an eternal being, is not subject to death unless he reduces himself to enfleshment. And that's what the Lord Jesus did. So by this, the uh, death and burial and resurrection of the Lord, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Does your Bible tell you how many times? Yet once. See, this is really, 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 really important. By the uh, offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for how many people? You see, this is really important. A one-time offering for absolutely everyone who will accept it. So what the Lord Jesus did on the cross is sufficient to uh, provide for the salvation of absolutely everybody but it's of no value until a person accepts it, you see? So, so by one offering, uh, Jesus Christ, in his enfleshment, in his suffering and death, provided a, uh, 
a means of renovation, otherwise known as sanctification. That's what sanctification is. The process of becoming holy as God is holy. It's a process. It doesn't take place overnight. So uh, the fact that Jesus Christ uh, died, was buried, rose up from death and ascended on high, and that you believe in it, you've accepted the totality of his offering for your sin, that began a process of sanctification or renovation in you. And you saw evidences of it even in your brief discussion a few minutes ago. And this work uh, on the part of the Lord Jesus is so fantastic that the writer of Hebrews wants to make sure he contrasts it with the work of Old Testament priests. Why? See, he's writing to Hebrews, hence the name of the book, Hebrews. And they're not too different than the rest of us. They were in a congregation, and it was a mixed congregation of believers and non-believers, perhaps such as we have even here tonight. And the writer of Hebrews was a little concerned that those who only profess to know Jesus the Messiah may be tempted in difficult times to go back to old Judaism, the old ways, and he's pointing out that this Jesus has provided a far better and more superior way. And so he contrasts his work with the work of the Old Testament priests. So here we read about it, verse 11. Every priest under the Old Covenant, before Jesus was enfleshed, every priest stands daily. Every priest, every day, ministering and offering every time, time after time. Every priest every day is engaged in the never-ending ministry of offering every time the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. They didn't work. Why not? Because they were never intended to work. <laughs> they were intended to accentuate our awareness of our sin nature and our need for the great high priest, the Lord Jesus, to come. They only foreshadowed him. They couldn't take away sin. You could make an offering in the old days of an unblemished uh, lamb or bull or goat, but it wouldn't do any renovation on the inside. It was just external, don't you see? Those people couldn't report the kinds of changes you did earlier tonight. They couldn't attribute a, 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 a new life, a, a, an interruption in unwanted patterns of behavior to that sacrificial system like we could to the offering of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those sacrifices no religious activity could take away sin. It's an interesting uh, uh, phrase, take away. Uh, it uh, was used in the sense of someone wearing a, a garment that you finally realize doesn't fit you anymore. You just don't look good in this overcoat. Somehow it managed to shrink or something. And uh, you're showing in all the wrong places. And it just... A little bit of here, a little bit. And you just, you cannot, you're surrounded by this unwanted uh, garment, ill-fitting garment, which doesn't accentuate all of your positive characteristics. And you cannot wait 
to get to a place where you could peel it off and be out from the atmosphere of this not very attractive garment. You can't wait to take it away. That's the word. And the writer of Hebrews is saying all those sacrifices offered by all those priests on all those days, it didn't work, did it? It didn't succeed in helping you to peel yourself free from this environment of guilt and shame and condemnation and awareness of sin which separated you from God. Those sacrifices didn't usher you into his presence. You could never feel comfortable with him. You just had this uh, unbridled reminder of how short you come of his holy standards. But there was no permanent solution. That was the old way of life. And the writer is saying, you don't want to go back there. In fact, there's a better way. The new high priest, and he's spoken of in verse 12, but he, you see, there were those priests of old, but he, the Lord Jesus, having offered how many sacrifices? One sacrifice, it was himself. He was both the offeror and the offering. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down. <gasps> They stood constantly. Verse 11, he sat down. Oh, he just didn't sit on the back porch of things. He sat down, doesn't it say this, at the right hand of God. He sat down in the position of authority and privilege and power. They couldn't sit because their work of offering sacrifice for sin was never done but the Lord Jesus, in offering himself for all people, for all time, one time, he sat down. And what is he doing now? Is he just kicking back and relaxing up there? No, 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 no. We read earlier in Hebrews chapter 7, we got a glimpse of what he's doing. You know what he's doing? He's defending you and me. Against what? Well, against the accuser of the brethren. That's Satan. That's why he's called the accuser of the brethren. You know how it works, don't you? You do that which you ought not do, or you say what you ought not say, or even think what you ought not think. That's called sin. And the evil one says to the father, some child of yours, he is or she is. They don't. He doesn't look very renovated at all. She doesn't look very sanctified at all. Boy, have they misrepresented you who claim to have adopted them. And then the son seated in the position of great privilege who has the ear of the father says, Father, it is true what that one your child has been accused of. That wasn't a mistake he or she made. He or she has no excuses. That was sin. That one, your child, indeed committed the sin. There's no one to blame. But Father, I suffered for it. I died for it. I paid the penalty for it. 
And the father says, absolutely. Evil one, accuser, you have no case against my adopted son or daughter. For my only begotten son has lodged the best defense. I suffered as a sin substitute for that one and that one and that one. And the father says, case dismissed. But the enemy keeps coming, you see. He's the accuser of the brethren. But this is what the Lord Jesus is doing. It says this, Hebrews 7, 25. Hence also he is able to save forever. In case you're wondering, how could you be saved forever? How could you keep from losing it? He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. Why? Since he always lives to make intercession for them. Since he is forever defending us, he is forever able to save us. You see, that's, that's what he's doing. Oh, no, he's just not wasting his time. He is interceding for us right now, daily, at the premier position of privilege, the right hand of the throne of God. And he's doing something else. He's not only interceding for us, defending us, he's waiting. Not waiting in the sense that we are, not knowing about the future and being a little impatient and unsettled. It isn't quite like that. Same word, but different kind of waiting. He is waiting in full knowledge of the specific time when his waiting for this particular outcome, which we'll tell you about, is to come. He's not lathered up about it, unsettled, shaken in any way. He's fully sovereign and in control. Time is not his enemy. Time is his servant and slave. He's not subject to it. So he's waiting, but it's a word for our benefit. He's interceding for us, and he's also waiting. Waiting for what? Well, the answer is given in verse 13. Waiting from that time, from the time when he offered himself on the cross, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. That's what the Lord Jesus is doing. Waiting for this time. This is a quotation from Psalm 110. You know what's significant about it? The writer of Hebrews applies it to Jesus. What? Do you mean the writer of Psalm 110 said something uh, centuries ago that finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ? You betcha. That is the interpretive key to the Bible. Look for Jesus in all places, even in Psalm 110. And so it says there, just what I'm reading here, until his enemies, he's waiting for the time, until his enemies, he has enemies. As it turns out, because you're identified with him, his enemies are your enemies. Those who hate him hate you. Don't take it personally. He's waiting for the time until his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. It's a metaphor of victory over enemies. It's what a conquering hero would do. So here's what's happening. This Jesus Christ is now seated at the place of highest authority and honor and power and privilege. From there, he reigns, albeit invisibly, invisibly. But he's waiting for the time. We should too. There is a day ahead. I know not when, but perhaps soon. When he will return to reign, no longer invisibly, but visibly. Are you looking forward to the day? 
Me too. I'm looking forward to that day. When he returns, his enemies will be made a footstool for his feet. Many people are looking forward to his visible return, although in different ways. The leader of Iran apparently is looking forward to the return of Jesus. Did you know this? Ahmadinejad. Ahmadinejad. In a recent speech he gave before the General Assembly of the United Nations reminded them of the return of the 12th Iman, Muslim Savior, to usher in a new era, a new caliphate, during which time Muslim Sharia law will prevail. And you will either live by it or be subjected to it. And he knows that the event preceding the return of the Muslim 12th Iman, the Muslim Savior, is world cataclysm. He knows this. That's why he's doing his best to usher it in. (laughs) He's no crazy man. He's a demonized man. Don't misdiagnose things. He is thumbing his nose at the United States of America and Israel on purpose. He has no IQ deficiency. He knows of our military might and so on. Bring it on, says he. Because he believes that world cataclysm will arouse the Muslim nations. And that will be the precursor to the return of the 12th Iman. But here's where Jesus comes in. He also said in his message to the United Nations, this just happened. With the 12th Iman will come Jesus. In what role? His understudy. Ah. Yeah, you got it, Billy. But but you need to tell the guy in Iran, stop preaching to me, would you? (laughs) You're right. He doesn't see him as king of kings and lord. No, 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 no. He's an underling. He's an understudy. He's the second For the imam, the Muslim savior is the savior. Jesus, okay, he existed. He he was a prophet of sorts. And Ahmadinejad thinks he's showing respect to Jesus to subordinate him to the Muslim savior who is coming. So he too is looking forward to the time when this Jesus will return visibly. Ah, but he doesn't get it. His return will be characterized by this statement made centuries ago by the psalmist in Psalm 110 and to be fulfilled in the Messiah Jesus to come. When he comes, he will visibly establish his kingdom on earth and his enemies, including the leader of Iran, short of repentance. His enemies will be made a footstool for his feet. He will be nobody's second in command. Nobody's understudy. Billy is right, and you're not often right, so let me give you credit. (laughs) King of kings and lord of lords. He's not subordinate to, to anybody. Folks, you know what's happening now? During the time when Jesus is reigning from on high invisibly, sinners judge him. But then, when he returns to, to rule visibly, Jesus will judge sinners. You see? That's how it is. You know, so here's the deal. 
If all you can see is the first coming of Jesus Christ and the cross, you're not seeing all that you need to see. You have to see past the cross and to the crown. First coming, the cross. Second coming, the crown. First coming, lamb of God, suffer and die. Second coming, lion of Judah, who will render all of those who oppose him in a position by which they will be made a footstool for his feet. It's so important that you have responded, and I, rightly, to his first coming, so we need not fear his second coming. you got to be right about the first coming, and then you're secure about the second coming. First the cross, then the crown. He came. He was crucified. He, he died. He was buried as evidence of it. He rose up, appearing to many as evidence of it, then ascended to the right hand of his father, and now he waits, and, and we do wait. Uh, the difference is the waiting is very difficult for us. We wonder, oh God, what are you waiting for? Are you not aware of what's happening in our world? Have you not read the news? Do you not know what we're faced with? Do you not see the degradation and decadence? Do you not see the anti-Christian world view? Do you not see what may be on the horizon in elections in our land and all over? Are you not aware of what's happening in the Middle East and all? Oh God, what are you waiting for? Why are you delaying? Well, I'll tell you why. <laughs> because he wants more people to join him. <laughs> That's why. And you know a few by name. Aren't you really glad for the long-suffering patience of Almighty God to wait so that friend or family member of yours who still yet does not know the King of Kings has a chance to? Don't you want... So his delay, which is a little difficult for us, is a delay of grace, don't you think, that more might be saved. He's done it all. So it says in verse 14, by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. I've been fascinated by this verse it has really lifted up my spirits. I don't think I can do an adequate job of lifting its meaning, but bear with me. Look, by one offering, he has perfected. But, but that does not mean that we are morally perfect, that we are sinlessly perfect. Uh, the word perfect in English is a little different than in the original language. It means a state of completion. You know what it means? By his one offering, he has totally completed all that is required for us to be perfectly saved. We are not perfectly sanctified yet, but we are perfectly saved. How? By our efforts? No, 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 no. By his one offering. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time, forever, those who are uh, sanctified. So though we are not yet perfect, we are perfectly saved. And what is the evidence? Because it's really important. If this is such a great thing, it's important to see evidence of it. Here's the evidence. The work of renovation, which you spoke of earlier, or sanctification, that you see going on in you, that is the evidence of your redemption. 
So do you see yourself becoming more like the one who has saved you? If so, you have evidence that he has saved you. If your answer to the question is, no, I do not see much evidence of change. I don't see myself really coming to be more and more like the one who saved me. Please don't be ashamed, but concern is legitimate. Would you talk to us, please? We don't have all the answers, but we would love to have conversation. You're troubled by this. Maybe we could, maybe we could help you a little bit. But if you see evidence of the work of the Savior in your life, that is evidence of the fact that the Savior has, has saved you. So the salvation work, see, by one offering he has perfected for all time. The salvation work done by him once in the past is proven by the sanctifying work going on in you and I in the present. You see, if there's no renovation, sanctifying work going on in the present, I didn't say that we're sinlessly perfect, but there ought to be changes on a daily basis. That work of present renovation is evidence of the reality of past justification. Could I get just a little theological for a minute? I think this might help. Um, when we think of salvation, some as a help to us, have divided it into three phases. I think it is quite helpful. The first they call justification. That is a legal pronouncement. That's where a judge uh, puts down his gavel and says, case dismissed, I have no case against you. You are forgiven, you are pardoned, go free. By the way, those are beautiful shirts you people are wearing. Were you baptized recently? Congratulations to you. Really wonderful, really wonderful. Those are really, really great shirts. See those people wearing shirts? Forgiven. That's what justification is. That happened once and for all, didn't it? Because of what the Lord Jesus did. And thank you for sharing it with us by being baptized. So that's justification. You don't grow into that. That's an event that takes place. Boom. The gavel goes down. But then there's uh, the second phase of salvation. That's called sanctification or renovation, I'm calling it. Maybe we're com more comfortable with that word. That doesn't happen once. That's an ongoing process. So this one-time justification because of the blood of the lamb has begun an ongoing process of renovation. And where is it leading us? Be excited. We, we sang victory in Jesus earlier. It's going to lead to the third phase of salvation, which is also an event that's called glorification. That means not only is the penalty of sin, see, that's been removed. The penalty of sin was removed here, justification. The power of sin is being removed little by little through sanctification. But one day, the very presence of sin, it stinks to still have an inclination to sin, don't you think? It's really a struggle. Don't you find it to be? The flesh versus spirit, you know? I'm grateful for the struggle. I mean, before... We couldn't even put up a fight. But the struggle is a little tiresome. That's going to culminate in the last phase of salvation called glorification. When our bodies are glorified in the sense they're no longer tainted by the presence of sin. Now that comes when we go to be with the Lord Jesus. You see? Or he comes for us, whichever comes, whichever comes first. So you know what the writer of Hebrews is saying? If you see the ongoing process today of renovation, that is your evidence of the fact that you have been justified. 
that you can wear the forgiven shirt. <laughs> that this one-time event where the Lord Jesus granted you a pardon based on your faith in his shed blood, your ongoing process of renovation is evidence of the work he already finished in saving you from sin. So by one offering, he has sanctified those he has already perfected. So your finished redemption is proven by your ongoing renovation. But there's even more help than the evidence of change in your life. And here he is in verse 15. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us. How does the very Spirit of God chime in and help us out? Well, it's through the Word of God. That's how it works. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to assure us that we are sons and daughters of God. And in this case, here's what the Holy Spirit did. The Holy Spirit, it says, for after saying, the Holy Spirit inspired a writer of the Old Testament to write. And the writer of Hebrews quotes it. It's Jeremiah chapter 31. Perhaps one of the most significant passages in all of the Old Testament. And here's how the writer of Hebrews quotes it. This is the covenant that I will make. When Jeremiah spoke to the Israelites, this covenant was yet future to them. They were under the old covenant of animal sacrifices. Jeremiah, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wrote, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws upon their heart, and on their mind I'll write them. The laws which God wrote on tablets, which were so wonderfully good, did not take away their sin, because they were not wonderfully good. The laws, the Ten Commandments were wonderful, but they were not wonderful. The Ten Commandments revealed, in fact, that they were sinful. God could have given up on them. No, instead, through his spirit, he moved Jeremiah to write of a covenant yet to come, the new covenant. You and I are under it. And under the new covenant, there's an internalization of God's heart and mind. It's no longer external to the person who's part of the covenant. Oh, no. It's a work of renovation done on the inside. It's an internal change. It says right here, I'll put my laws on their heart, on their mind. I'll write them. Don't you think it's wonderful that you have a point of view about marriage maybe you never had before? You have a point of view about the sanctity of life. I don't know. Maybe you never had that before. You had a point of view about <clears throat> the future. Maybe you never had before. You have a point of view about who you are and who God is. This is the mind of Christ. You see, the laws of old could not do that. But God says, under this new covenant, I'll give you my thoughts. I'll give you my mind. I'll inscribe my values on your heart. I'll implant them in your mind. I'll do an internal work of renovation. And what's more, verse 17, their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Oh my goodness. The old covenant did the opposite. There was no forgetting of your sin. 
there were annual reminders. We spoke of Yom Kippur a week or so ago. Day of Atonement every year. Here we go again. Oh, for crying out loud. We're not eating any food. We're standing on our feet. My feet are killing me. We're standing up all day long. We're in the temple. We're making all these sacrifices. We're crying out to God. Oh, you know, we promise not to do again what we did again. And, you know, and, oh, may your name be inscribed in the book of life. We wish you well. We hope your repentance took, but we won't know for sure, you know. This is, this is not a good, you know, but, 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 but under the new covenant, which the Holy Spirit moved Jeremiah to prophetically tell us about in advance, under it, God says, and their sins, yours, mine. And their lawless deeds, yours and mine. I will remember no more. Does it mean that God literally forgets? No. No, no he, he's God. It's as if he forgets. The Bible says he has cast all our sins behind his back. You know what that means? He's not going to go back there and hold it up as an obstruction in our relationship anymore. You know who goes back there to try to bring it up again? We do. We, we do. But under the new covenant, you're under it. I'm under it. It's the new covenant in the blood of the Lord Jesus. His Holy Spirit has come in to change us from the inside. You've seen evidence of it. You shared it earlier. And not only that, under this new covenant, God says, I will no longer remember your sins and, and lawless deeds. So you know what our job is? It is to do with our sin exactly what God has done with it. Forget it. Now be careful. Don't run me out of town just yet. I didn't say take it lightly. No, no, no. We confess it. We, we agree with God. It's sin. We turn from it. That's called repentance. We say, oh, God, please strengthen me that I will be less prone to do this again. We confess it. We turn from it, and then we forget it. Huh? Why? Because that's the privilege of the new covenant. I just want to have the same attitude towards my sin that God does. It's forgiven. It's forgotten. That doesn't mean we sin all the more. Oh, no, because there's something in us. He is in us, giving us a new motivation not to sin. It isn't that we fear God. It's because we love him. Why do we love him? Because he first overwhelmed us with his love. Are you kidding me? We don't want to sin against the one who loves us most. So we do with our sin what God did. Confess it, turn from it, forget it. Or, if you prefer, because of sin, even recently committed, you can disqualify yourself from the Christian life. You can drop out. In so doing, what you're doing is punishing yourself. And the reason why you're punishing yourself is you don't understand what the writer of Hebrews has said. He has said you don't have to punish yourself. Why? Verse 18, with which we'll close. Now, where there is forgiveness, and there is forgiveness in the once and for all offering of the Lord Jesus Christ, for all people who accept it and for all time. Now, where there is this forgiveness of these things, the things 
that still perhaps plague you even as we sit here. Where there is forgiveness of these things, there is, I just love this, no longer any offering for sin. Literally, it means there is no longer any need for any other offering for sin. It does not impress God if you and I punish ourselves for sins committed. In fact, it seems to say to God, we do not think what your son did is sufficient, so I must add to it. I didn't say to take sin lightly at all. Confess it. Repent of it. Forget it. Put your head up. Put your shoulders back and say, oh, God, thank you. I am a forgiven one. Fill me now with your spirit whom I have quenched with my sin. And use me for your glory. For I am as usable and useful now to the kingdom as anybody else. For where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any need for any other offering for sin. So one time I was uh, replacing a missionary in England. I was his replacement. This was a million years ago. And uh, it seems... He had a reputation of being quite a godly man. I was a bit intimidated upon meeting him. And we drove around through the uh, British countryside, getting familiar with one another. He was going to pass the baton to me. And uh, he said to me, uh, you know, Stuart, I've been a Christian for a long time, and in all the years, I don't remember. That's what he said, being out of fellowship with him for more than 15 minutes. I thought, either this guy is like superhuman who knows what, or he's just lying through the skin of his teeth. Are you kidding me? But then he explained to me. He said, Stuart, it's not that I have not sinned. Sadly, I confess I have. But I believe in grace greater than all my sins. And I believe that where I have been faithless, uh, the Lord remains faithful. And I believe that he has cast all my sin behind his back. So I just figuratively speaking come before him with respect and thank him for making me a forgiven one. I thank him for the one offering which saw 2,000 years ago all of my sins yet to come coming. I thank him for that. I accept it. I beseech him to make me stronger so as to respond differently to the temptations around me. And then I press on as if there is absolutely no obstruction between me and the Lord, nor is there any more any limitation on his ability and willingness to make use of me and be glorified through me. I just don't wait around to confess, repent, and forget it. And all told, 
That's only taken me about 15 minutes in all these decades of walking with the Lord. Because if I wait longer, I'm minimizing the one offering, once and for all offering, which paid the debt for my sin. I am punishing myself with shame and guilt and this and that. I'm rendering myself crucified because I do not think the crucified one suffered enough. And he said, I refuse to do that. He said, I have an inclination to sin, but I'm just as inclined to believe that God suffered and died totally and completely for all of my sins so I don't have to labor over it longer than it takes for his spirit to make me miserable over it, convict me of it. I admit it. I confess it. I ask him to strengthen me. I thank him for forgiving me. And I press on as if I have his favor, as if I'm the most Godward person in the world, as if his spirit now has total and complete freedom to work through me in speech and word and conduct. And I do not look back. I do not go back there behind God's back because if he's made me the offer of separating me from my sin as far as the east is from the west, I don't want to change the geography of it all. I just accept justification. Now fully participate in the process of renovation. Look forward to the reality of glorification. Aren't you glad you have been saved to the uttermost by the Lord Jesus Christ? Me too. That's why we pray to you. That's why we sing and worship. That's why we dedicate our lives. It's all because of the initiative you have taken in coming in becoming embodied, in suffering, in dying, in rising, in ascending, in interceding, in waiting. Oh, God. And we wait with hopeful anticipation for your return. And if we do not look past the cross to the crown, we will be as if we are ones without hope in this world. But we are with hope, O oh God of all hope. Hopeful are we for the time when your invisible rule and reign will be suddenly transformed into that which is visible, every enemy of yours and therefore ours being rendered a footstool for your feet. And we, seated at those very feet, forever worshiping and praising you, O oh God, thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for pardon and adoption and for the process of renovation which is evidence of the reality of salvation. Savior, get mileage out of us until you return. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.